Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is now completely virtual. This amazing operating system that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful package can now be digested from the comfort of your home or personal workspace. Reconditioning is about unleashing the human in human performance. It's about understanding why you or your clients are not performing or living your best life and giving you and your clients the skills for optimal performance. Our courses, R1 Foundations and R2 Designs take you through a complete process in assessment and intervention. Our Reconditioning Specialist Mentorship pulls everything together in your operating context, and our landmark program, Empower You, helps you navigate your own life so you can be your very best. For more information about reconditioning courses and programs, head over to reconditioninghq.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off the price of any one of our empowering courses. Most recently, Matrix Fitness Canada partnered with Playball Academy Canada in Kitchener, Ontario to create the Matrix Conditioning Centre. The Matrix Conditioning Centre within the facility provides PBA athletes and coaches access to the best and most current conditioning tools to support their development. By combining the Matrix research on product usage with customized needs of the coaches, simple performance metrics are being developed in a body-friendly and progressive way. It is a hybrid model combining high-performance metric analysis with coach-friendly opportunities. Speed training, sprint mechanics, coaching, metabolic conditioning, warm-up and cool-down are all some of the examples of how these tools are being used. Playball Academy Canada was established in 2014 and has developed into one of the premier indoor baseball training facilities in the country. From grassroots player and skill development to the pro level, the facility and its programming continue to evolve and grow. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness equipment that serves exercisers and operators from all corners of the globe. When it comes to sport performance, Matrix Portfolio continues to grow through its partnership with amateur and professional sports organizations globally. To get more information on how Matrix Fitness can customize something for your team, contact Matrix directly at greg.lawler at matrixfitness.com and tell them Leave Your Mark sent you. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Aubrey Green. Aubrey is a chiropractor professionally and has a 15 plus year career caring for his clients in Toronto. The visionary behind Dr. Green's health and wellness, Aubrey has made a career of taking care of many professional athletes, fitness enthusiasts and health conscious individuals. His passion and insight have driven him to create a sports therapy treatment that focuses on not only the physical pain but lifestyle choices, demands, stresses on the body and the proper way to treat and understand the pain. Although he has had a very rewarding and highlight-filled career, he has also experienced great pain, challenge, and change which has shaped his career, his life, and as a husband and father of two. And the impassioned work he, he is now doing moving towards today. He is passionate about his pod, new podcast, Off IR, where he is trying to move his listeners through sharing many of the stories of his powerful career and connections. I'm honored to have him on the show today. Welcome, Aubrey. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, I also want to thank you, as you're the first uh, podcast that I'll be guesting on. Uh, I, as you said, I started my own. I'm new to the podcast world. I've kind of 
hung out in my little secure bubble over the last 18 years to do what I wanted to do and kind of stay out of the line of fire. Uh, but I'm entering more of a public uh, speaking, uh, open, uh, with good intentions of trying to make an impact in people's lives as you are doing on your pod. And as you were, you know, pointed out to me by colleagues that I have as a, a really good starting point for me, someone I could have a good conversation with and who had like-minded intentions and aspirations to enrich the lives of others. So thank you. And I hope your guests enjoy what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the, uh, the wonder before the start. So we'll see where it all rock and rolls to. So we were actually brought together by uh, a common friend, Mark Fitzgerald. So how do you know, know Mark actually just through work? So, yeah, I know Fitzy, uh, I would consider him a friend now. Uh, we've been, we've known each other for many years through the, originally the hockey landscape and the hockey world, because I uh, spent many years uh, in that world. Um, I had essentially two parts of my career. Uh, the first part of my career was a lot of what I did and a lot of my protocols and techniques at making corrections, uh, at uh, avoiding, you know, pitfalls for the athlete and their bodies. The, the latter half and the second half of my career, I took on a stronger role, had a lot to do with integration and a systematic approach to solving athletes' uh, issues, either current or in you know, perceived to be in the future. And to do that, you need to surround yourself by a lot of great people. Um, and one of the pitfalls with the way people's health and their bodies are dealt with, not only on the professional level, but the everyday to day person or the weekend warrior, the fitness enthusiast is that, uh, you're going to have a problem and you're going to have to have it fixed, but it's tough for one person to do the whole job and the outcome, the success of that. You know, if we look at a surgeon, every single athlete who ever had surgery within two or three days, they're announcing that they had successful surgery yet somewhere down the road, so many of them fail out. So it's not just simply doing your job. The surgeon needs to do his job or her job, but the other people that you need at the table, your strength and conditioning, your reconditioning people, your physiotherapist, your athletic therapist, your psychologist, <laughs> your people who can solve and put it all together, your chiropractors, your soft tissue specialists, whatever it may be, your skating instructor. If you're getting back on the ice, you don't want to just start with an assistant coach. You want to start with someone who understands the body and understands how you ramp things up. So in the pursuit of always doing that integrated model. Fitzy's the guy that stood out to me as someone who knew his craft, uh, was not ego-based, which is a real problem uh, in our industry where there's a lot of people, if you're dealing with a patient or you're dealing with someone else's health and someone else's career, it simply can't be about you. It could never be about me as I was trying to help somebody else. And there's way too many me people in that. So you got to find people who want to be a part of a team, who want to integrate, who want to do their job, stay in their lane successfully and enrich the end product. And Fitzy's one of those people. Um, and we worked beyond. I brought him in on NFL football cases that I'd been working on too, because I trusted his intel. And 
Some of these things are sports specific. A lot of this stuff is understanding the human body and what the person needs to do and aspires to do. Uh, and as I said, I, I'm, I'm proud to call Fitzy a friend and I'm happy he made the introduction and I'm happy that he hopped on board for a number of my cases uh, to help me out. Um, and I always respected the athletes. He, you know, he runs ETS in Whitby, which is, I don't know, 45 minutes away from my office and his, his athletes were always welcome in our clinic because they came for a reason and there was going to be communication. And communication is key to results. It's actually mind-boggling how many patients or athletes don't understand what's going on with their own health. And it's unbelievable. You know, if I'm a chiropractor, which I, you know, I struggle with that description because I worked well beyond that. But if I'm a chiropractor in my office and want to say, and I'm doing the work I want. It's not simply what I do in my office that matters. What happens before they came in and after matters. So if I'm trying to get their range of motion back, well, somebody else, the strength coach is trying to add strength to the product. We're working for different outcome measures right there. And I think communication is key in our industry. And I know for certain that it doesn't exist as it should. Mm. It's a beautiful table set for, I think, where we can go with this um, as we roll and a, a nice ode to your work with Mark. But I want to get to how you get how you get to this place of your viewpoint. So you're a kid growing up in Toronto. Um, what what are the influences on you as a as a as a kid growing up that uh, start to shape who you become? So that's an interesting question, uh, one I haven't necessarily thought about because there's like different chapters in my life that kind of disconnected some of the journey. But I was an athletic child, uh, not scripted as we are today. So it wasn't, you know, professionalization and specialization for eight-year-olds, right? It was just playing on the street, playing multiple sports, um, playing basketball, uh, basketball was probably my passion and the sport I played the most. Um, and when I was 16, I injured myself uh, and I had to go to a chiropractor and I enjoyed the experience. Uh, although that chiropractor, as much as I appreciate my exposure, wouldn't be someone I'd go see today because the, the scope has grown and there's a lot more than simply adjusting a joint or moving a, uh, a joint that encompasses what a good chiropractor needs to be able to do um, in the world of musculoskeletal injury. So that was my first exposure to it. So I was interested in, you know, non-pharmaceutical. I wasn't, you know, surgery and that kind of stuff wasn't my jam. So that's kind of how I started shaping what I would do. And I actually went to law school first, which is ironic. I was interested in both law and chiropractic. I got into law school because um, you could get in a little bit earlier than you could get into Cairo based on the amount of years of undergrad they needed. And I enjoyed law school. I did a year and then I got into chiropractic and I got into chiropractic and I wanted to make the switch. I enjoyed the education for law school, but I knew that, you know, you're going to be hard pressed to find a lawyer who's 40 years old, not working till two in the morning. And it tends to come at a big sacrifice uh, for lifestyle. Not to say you don't love it, but you're going to hear a lot of lawyers who aren't thrilled about the, the parameters of their job and lifestyle mattered to me. Plus, my mom wasn't a fan of lawyers, so why would I want to become a lawyer? So <laughs> I, I chose uh, to, to leave law school and I actually did so 
knowing that financially or economically, the legal world in law school tends to yield to more success than chiropractic would as a profession. So I was making the right decisions back then too, in terms of pursuing passion instead of dollars. And fortunately in my instance, that came too with my expertise. Um, but I was making the decisions for the right reason. Did you have pressure, I ha- pressure dynamics from the, your parents growing up about what you were going to become or needed to do, or were, were they kind of hands off, let, let you, let you become the person you're going to become? I think my parents were hands off. I think my parents dealt with their own stuff. You know, my parents got divorced when I was 16 years old, which had traumatic uh, elements to it, uh, especially when you think you're the cleavers <laughs> and you find home that you're not. So it, uh, that had a, an impact. My parents were dealing with their own and trying their best. And I think they did a, a good job of instilling, you know, hard work uh, and opening the door wide enough that I could do what I wanted to do. And they were supporting it all along. Mm. So when do you, you obviously make a decision to go to law school. When do you say this is not for me and I'm going to move to chiropractic and, and how do you make that leap of faith? So with me, it was, I got a leave of absence. So I got, I got my acceptance to Cairo. I was already half, way through first year law school at Osgood uh, in Toronto. And I said, you know, I asked for a leave of absence and they would give it to me for one year. Uh, and I said, I'm going to go for one year and I'm going to see, and then I'll decide whether I want to go back or whether I want to stay. First year Cairo was an absolute disaster for me because I had no science background. I had, you know, some basics, but really didn't know anything. And I'm trying to learn simple words like anterior, posterior, you know, stuff like that, that, you know, basic medical terminology as they're trying to teach us chemistry and the list goes on histology. So the first year was a big time grind having most people would have come from can or some basic science background, but I, ultimately made the right decision. And I just think the hands-on plus the, the patient interaction, plus if you look at it from its simplicity, chiropractors and health professionals should be there to help out other people. Lawyers, I don't know as a whole if you're saying the same thing. So I really think if you break down to its core, you can see how one has a different stream than the other. Um, that doesn't mean that a lot of you know, Kairos don't get caught up in the business corporate landscape, but that definitely stood out to me. And I was free to make those decisions. And I guess I've always been somewhat, you know, I don't know if stubborn's the word, but I was going to do what I thought was right, even before I knew that that was the right decision. So once you get into chiropractic, what do you fall in like with? Hmm. I think I fell out of like with things more than I fell into like stuff with, because I've always been a critical thinker even before I knew that that kind of terminology existed. Um, and it was interesting. You got in there to chiropractic and I went to CMCC, which is in Toronto. And uh, it was at a different location there. And you just had these two spectrums. You had the people who were more scientific, athletic. Uh, and then you had a lot of other people who were strong core chiropractic. And I think some of their beliefs and philosophies, although they believe them to be true, 
definitely didn't mesh with me. So I, I, I was observing as much as I was joining anything and that kind of, so, but I like the idea of the hands-on. I like getting in there. I like the diagnostics of trying to dive into that kind of stuff, but straight up truth be told, no different than most post-secondary educations. They don't lay the foundation for success. They give you a key to enter the room. And uh, if I took what I learned in Cairo college and I made that the basis of everything I ever did. I wouldn't be sitting in this chair today because it's, and listen, it's gone a long way since then. You know, the, the, the implication of that, you know, how people use acupuncture with stimulation and how soft tissue and all the accessory courses that you can get exposed to now that have value back in the day, it didn't exist like that. Now in today's world, you got to siphle through, which is going to help you and which won't. But I wasn't overly impressed with the profession or the school, to be truthful, um, but it was a means to an end. Um, and that actually shaped what I did once I got out of that place. So mm-hmm. I took a different course immediately than I think a lot of other people did. But uh, it was interesting. Uh, I have my viewpoints. I've mentored and spoken to a lot of prospective Kairos over the years, um, as I have over the last few years with a lot of different professionals. And I think it takes a certain makeup and a certain understanding to go pursue that and then make the most out of it. In today's time, you also got to factor in the cost of those educations. So you better hope you have a plan when you get out, because I think when I went to Cairo, it was like 10, 12 grand a year plus plus. Now it's 25,000. So for four years, you know, that's a lot of money to invest. Let's hope you have a plan on the back end of how you're going to utilize that education and make it a worthwhile uh, investment. And I will add one more thing. I think within about five, 10 years of me graduating, probably half my class was no longer practicing. Mm. And that's a scary statistic. Hmm. That's a scary, t- and I don't think that was out of choice. I think that's out of reality. Uh, being paramedical practitioners in a country like Canada where healthcare is free, um, getting people to pay for stuff when they can get stuff for quote unquote free is another layer that makes the profession that much more challenging. Chiropractic in Toronto, especially, there's a lot of, you know, there's some been some big principal players in that landscape, like Lindsay and Scapatici and Prebag and these guys. Like, who did you have any early influencers that sort of pivoted your thought process on how you were going to use this practice? Or did you just kind of, were you a bit of a, a loner and did your own thing, so to speak? Definitely a loner. Um, not a lot of people who want to give you knowledge. Um, and supply you knowledge just for the essence of, hey, I want to teach you, and with that simplicity. So I was on my own. Uh, I actually took the acupuncture course at McMaster uh, that Scapatici was one of the teacher's um, guest lecturers, uh, and Prebag was actually in the course with me. So Mike's someone I know, we've been friends, we, we've never worked together on cases, but we crossed paths being in the industry. But I got to tell you, I was a loner and then I, I built my own networks. Mm. Um, I find that not specific to those guys, but it's a, it's a dicey murky waters out there. So for me, it was a lot of trial and error. And a lot of what went on in my personal life 
shape what was going on professionally. And I just saw things a little different and I found solutions. I developed my, you know, I took a course at McMaster for acupuncture that involves stimulation, but I developed my own protocols, my own approaches, uh, systematic that yield truthfully next level results that ultimately led to people knocking on my door and flying in to see me and then wanting me to fly all over the place to work with them. Hmm. But I was always solution-based. I was always solution-based. I can tell you that I got into the profession of chiropractic. And when I got out, I was committed to one thing. There's a, there's a lot of, there's, there's a, I don't know if you call it a narrative, but that out there that once you go to chiropractor, you got to go forever. And I never believed in that. I don't think you should be going three times a week for the rest of your life. I don't think you should be going twice a week for the rest of your life. I think you should be going for solutions, given the education and be able to manage it yourself. That doesn't mean that athletes don't need maintenance or supportive care. That doesn't mean that everyday people won't have an issue that requires ongoing care, but there's just a wide range of uncontrolled ways that you can deal with uh, patients and not controlled or governed that tightly. And there's a lot of stuff that happens that really doesn't yield the right results. And, you know, the guys you mentioned, the respect I have for them is that they're chasing results. Mm-hmm. Um, I can sit here critically with anybody and look at athletes and what the outcome was in my seat now. But ultimately, you know, you're talking about guys who are high level guys skilled at what they do and are also teachers. So I have a lot of respect for that. As far as my teaching and mentorship was strictly towards my associates that worked underneath me that I basically taught my protocols and approach, but to be good at what I do or what we do, it's not strictly science and it's not strictly an art. It's a combination of both, and you have to have those tools. And then when you compound that by saying, I want to work with alpha males, you know, these pro athletes in a, you know, egoically driven old boys club environment, you have to be able to sit at that table comfortably. How I did it was different than I think how most people can do it, but there's so many layers to that uh, that aren't easy. And I didn't sit in class at CMCC and say, I aspire to work with athletes. I didn't. Um, And it worked out that way. I aspired to be good at what I did. And I think that you got to set your goals up uh, and you should have lofty goals, but you also have to have a plan to get there. Uh, Mine was less based on a a plan and more about evolution uh, and the craziness that was my journey. Well, I'm interested in unpacking that a little bit because you you kind of talk about the fact that you were a little bit disappointed in the program, uh, maybe a little bit disappointed in the the bias towards um, manual constraints and things. And so what is it about you or about influences that allows you to see the possibility in that and not just be disappointed with it and move on to something else. So what, what lights that fire that, Hey, I can, I can use this and apply these things and create something hybrid. That's a much better model. Uh, A lot of it was observational. The first, you know, so I started working with athletes really, really early on in my career. It presented itself, 
but I had to solve problems in order to stay in that room. It wasn't just granted to me like, Hey pal, like a lot of the people who work with professional athletes, there's nothing impressive to me when I see that people work with professional athletes. Cause how was the relationship? Is this your brother's dog's best friend's sister that is introducing you or do you belong there and do you continue to belong there and do you continue to earn your keep? So I wanted to get the results for those people. Um, please ask me after why and how I lost my ego. So I can tell you how it played into this conversation. But I also watched a lot of athletes. When you work with the athletes that I worked with, even early on, on the level that I worked with them and the intimacy of the relationship that you develop, I had a bird's eye view of what was going on without, with other athletes. And I started observing and watching and there was failure all around me. Like I read this morning about Kemp, a basketball player who had stem cell in his knee and there he's going to be out till January and how Boston is hopeful. Four years ago, he had a meniscus tear. Okay. Two surgeries later, the stem cell he's getting in us isn't going to help him. And they're left with a three year, $110 million problem. I know that to be true because I've watched it so many times over in different elements. But what I watched was ultimately what happened was guys would get injured and then they would return and then they would have a re-injury or quote unquote miss more time. And in so many cases, by the time the athlete was somewhere between 28 and 31, it was the peak and then it was a quick downhill slope because of mismanagement of something. So I said, how do I solve these problems and how do I not become just another person in this system that ultimately leads to failure? And so as observationally, there weren't a lot of influences, influencers, except for to be quite frankly with you, I was highly influenced by the mass failure that exists in the pro landscape. I really was impacted by that, saddened by it, impacted it by it. And in under, other conversations over the years, I kind of joke about it. It's like, I don't know if I'm that good or if everybody else is that bad, but something happened there that it created an opportunity for me. And I rolled with it and ran with it. And ultimately to me, you're either in the game or you're out of the game. Okay. So you can talk all the other stuff and people can talk about a lot of things, but are you playing or are you not playing? And to me, halfway through my career, it became about that man games played. If you're the guys I started dealing with the accountability, their drive to be out there for their teammates every night, are you out there and are you performing to your expectation? The reality is the vast majority of professionals can't answer that question positively. They, they're not out there. And I don't even know if they want to be out there with the money that's out there these days. But my guys wanted to be out there. And that's what we drove for. Be out there. Be accountable. And yes, ultimately shit does hit the fan. And every athlete and every individual is going to encounter problems that are bigger than, hey, we can play through this. As soon as you press stop and you leave the game, don't come back until you sorted it to a level. And I looked at you and I know that you've also dealt with reconditioning, which is a big word. It's not just getting back. It's getting back to the level that you can sustain the play. You can withstand the rigors of your sport and be who you were before and continue that. And I was always about that when I was working with Henrik Zetterberg, who's a great example, you know, 
I started working with him. I don't know. He was in his late twenties, early thirties. The minute I started working with him, I was thinking about him at 33 and 34 and 36. If you want to wake up the athlete somewhere between 28 and 31 and say, okay, now's when I want to solve the problems. Well, you're going to have problems like Kemba Walker. If you want to address it properly and say, Hey, let's deal with this properly and move on. You're going to have a future that's sustainable. And quite frankly, it just simply doesn't exist. And I got to tell you on a side note, now that I've entered this podcast world, it's so easy for me to sit back and read the headlines. I can see the failure all over the place because this is a somewhat archaic industry that is operated in such a way that historical failures are still allowed. And that's no disrespect to the fact that within teams, you got some brilliant, brilliant practitioners and really well-intended people, but you also have a lot of roadblocks and people who just want the guy out there playing even if it's not in his best interest because he's trying to answer to a coach or a GM or to an owner who's saying, what the hell? So it's, it's really a flawed system and I hate calling it out as that, but I use that to propel myself and separate myself. And ultimately I ended my career uh, doing what I did quite recently with my guys playing until they wanted to give it up. And that's the goal. The goal is, is like do what you want to do as best you can for as long as you can but also set yourself up for life after the game or after your career or after you're done playing squash matches so that you still have health, a level of wellness that you can sustain into your later years. Well, there's a lot of um, influencing factors in, the, in what you just described. I mean, in the industry itself, unfortunately, people don't always recognize that professional sport is an entertainment industry. And as an entertainment industry, it's not actually set up in the best interest of the athlete or the performance um, capacity of the athlete, except for maybe a very small cohort of athletes that are worth gajillions of dollars to a particular club. But for the most part, um, it's set up to, to see the success of the organization despite the athlete and, I think that it's it's the recognition point of the athlete that the athlete has to take better care of themselves within the constraints of the of the organization and also within their own life that is a huge play. So when you you know I, I recognize the type of uh, professional practice you've had um, from from what I've read about you and what what you've talked about and you know. Athletes, there's a certain cohort of athletes which has grown over time who have sought external care and consideration by either a certain principal player or a multitude of players, which you started out at the beginning, bringing their team together around them and making sure that they're well taken care of. That's that's a that's a that's been a growth process in the industry over time, but it still is surprising to me that these guys, you know, a guy will make a twenty five million dollar salary and not spend you know, 5% of it or 10% of it on, on critical care of, of the way they're taken care of uh, and supported external of the organization. And I'm kind of curious when you started working with some of these guys, how, um, and I wouldn't use the word convince because that's not the best word, but how did you um, find or move them towards a greater 
essence of care around themselves and to see that light or that picture of the possibility when most of the time a younger athlete, especially if they're not injured, don't recognize those things. And it takes a really special mature athlete to see that. Um, so were there any particular cues, keys, thoughts, ways, discussions you had with these athletes that drove that? I think that's really high value information. I'm going to give you that. I just want to talk to two or three things you said first. You mentioned that most athletes, which I agree with, aren't getting the teams aren't providing them with care unless they're a gazillion dollar athlete. You said, which is true, that you'd think that the higher price players would give in better care. But that's also simply not the case. I think those higher price players that are getting the supreme care are looking for it elsewhere. And the ones who are getting supreme care with inside of an organization, that organization is clearly an outlier. They would not be the norm, and they probably have a few key players in there that are driving that system. You know, I, 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 I don't know why I'm going football, but J.J. Watt, $100 million athlete, has a microdiscectomy surgery for a disc herniation, and he's back on the field practicing within four weeks, playing at five weeks, doesn't make it very far before he screws it up, okay? Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to screw up his knee and his pec. And there's a connection between some of that stuff, as you understand. And there's your gazillion dollar athlete who's on a team who got grossly mismanaged because based on his injury, I could tell you that even for a hockey player, he shouldn't have contact for eight weeks. That's a hockey player, a football player who's 300 pounds, who's just all collision, all compressive forces. He was going to fail. So and then to move on to your point about young athletes, I agree with you. The biggest problem is you're giving them all their money at 20, 21, 22, 24, 27. If I look at my career, I had no clue when I was 27 years old. I, I, had, I still was figuring out my way in life at 37, 38. I'm 45 now. So you're asking a lot for a lot of people at young age to be a celebrity to be always have your tires pumped up like you're the best, to have a failed system that's trying to take care of you, and you're supposed to run your show as a business because your point is brilliant. I think every athlete should be looking at ten, at least 10% of their salary and saying, I want to invest this into my health. Who has a business out there that is listening to this that isn't investing in their business? That no one operates at 96% or 4% overhead, which an athlete does. They got the cost of their lights and their support staff and all these things. But the system also was built long ago so that so many of us would be willing to just take it for the guy. They just want the guy in their office. They don't care about the price. And guys get used to it. I had guys, when I charged a fraction of what I ultimately ended up charging, who always tilted their head when they talked about cost and price. You can't instill that into somebody. You can't teach them to be a greater professional than they want to be before that time's right. They have to have the desire within them to want more than what the system yields and to want to be committed to the team, to their teammates, to yield those results. So I think the answer is the guys that I dealt with that caught on to it were already aware that these things occurred and problems arise and they were so driven to be the best that when they got proposed with an opportunity that, Hey, you can call me anytime you want and come fix a problem. I'll, I'll come, I'll come fix it as best I can and I will fix it and get you back out there. 
But if you're looking to play for as long as you want and you're looking to be out there every night and accountable and be the player you want, we need to be working preventatively. So you're feeling great. I'm still seeing you and I'm still examining you because things don't go from asymptomatic, no problem to a symptomatic problem. There's a period of time where it's asymptomatic. You don't really feel it. But the problem exists. If you're doing the right examinations, orthopedic tests, if you got your, high, your eyes and your hands on the athlete, you're going to identify a little weakness here, a little imbalance here, changes here that you can then deal with somewhat preventatively and they never escalate to a bigger storm. So the proposal of staying in the game is all the athletes I needed you know, to work with. No, and then when I got to the second half of my career, I no longer was interested in the guy who just wanted to get patched up and then broken again. It just really, as soon as I started to smell and recognize and got really passionate about the concept of health and wellness and performance that's sustainable over time, I really had no interest in the quick fix. Yeah, it's game five, Stanley Cup finals, quick fix all the way. But you can't quick fix at game one and game two because then, you, you know, you're, it's all downhill. So I did a lot of this on my own, and I was fortunate enough that the athletes that came to me over time wanted what I had to offer and deliver on and took the leap to say, okay, let's see how this goes. But the truth is, as I sit here and I look in the rearview mirror, they got what they signed up with, and I delivered with what I told them with. And I got to tell you the lack of accountability in all, you know, professions, but in our, in our professions, you know, dealing with athletes and trying to help people out with their health, get back on track. The amount of people who over promise and under deliver is sad. And uh, I encourage all practitioners uh, and all people for that matter to be accountable. If you tell somebody that you're going to deliver on something, don't worry, it's going to be fine it better be fine. And if it's not fine, then you should be able to stand up and say, I know I told you something, but I was wrong. And I just don't think that exists. And I think there's way too many multi-million dollar athletes who are sitting at home and their careers have floundered. And so has their bank accounts because they were told by the wrong person that don't worry, everything will be okay. Good point. I'm going to use that moment to segue into a piece I do in my podcast, which is because I want to sort of bifurcate on this little party, but I read from a book called The Day You Were Born, which was written by a woman named Linda Joyce in New York, who's an astrologer and numerologist, and uh, that's why I asked you for your birth date. So you were born December 18th, right? Correct. So you're a Sag like me. Uh, Sagittarius 9. So your purpose is to present and protect your vision, creating it through the power of your being, influencing and convincing others to follow your path. Your quote is, intelligence highly awakened is an intuition which is the only true guide in life, Krishnamurati. The Sagittarius 9 should always listen to their instincts. Aggressive, stubborn, and persistent, they love conflict and excitement. Their mind is keen, and they use it to avoid physical combat. Convinced that they have a destiny to fulfill, they are anxious to manifest it. Capable of many emotions and multi-talented, their problem is choosing one path. Sexy, charming, and magnetic, they have a passionate nature and a love for life. Nature itself calls them and 
sports attract them. Grifted with Gifted with unlimited energy, they are often their own worst enemy, chasing obsessively after someone or something that has aroused them. They demand loyalty. They want things their way, right away. A challenge attracts them to such a point that they often simply respond instead of carefully choosing where to put their energy. The Sagittarius 9 needs to slow down and look at the whole picture. Only then will life cease to be a series of sports with short-term rewards. I like that. Yeah, I, I do like that. I read it earlier, actually, in preparation for this. And after I, I took the time to listen to a couple of your podcasts and also the one which we'll get into about your beautiful wife, Brenda, and the loss you, you had. And I'm kind of curious when I read that, it sounds like the guy that um, that got to 28 years old and kind of had um, kind of ca- caught the lion by its tail. And then you describe, so for the listener, you know, um, Aubrey um, lost uh, his wife uh, very early in their relationship back in the early 2000s. And I'll let Aubrey tell the story. But, uh, you know, he in, in his own podcast, there's a very worthy listen where he tells that story with full emotion, which I thought was very powerful. But uh, and it seems to have. It shaped him, changed him, manifested sort of maybe that ability to slow down and look at things differently. And so maybe you want to tell the listener, you know, up until that point, obviously you're cutting your teeth, you're you're working with pro athletes, you're flying around doing your thing, and then you meet this beautiful woman, and, and how does that all roll out? You, How does she catch your eye and pin you down? So thank you for the quote. Um, because it made the hair on my neck stand up. I'm not, I've, I've seen astrologists. I've been open. I'm open to stuff. And then I, I vetted out for myself to say, okay, is this work? And I've never really been one who was into signs and those things, although I'm into uh, spiritual signs and, and, and understand that there's a higher power. Um, so to give you, uh, and you also mentioned the word love for life in that paragraph you read and love for life is is the name of the foundation that i started way back when for my late wife the brenda green love for life foundation that i hope to now get up and about to where it needs to be so it was very poignant of you picking that and i didn't know and and i was happy to hear it and i'm happy to talk to it so um october 5th 2001 my life changed forever uh, when my fiance at the time, Brenda, who was my everything and in many ways is still my everything with no disrespect to my current wife and my children, uh, she would be the center of my universe and my driving force and the thing that has kept me alive for, for a very long time. And October 5th, 2001 stands out to me because that was the day we were in an office and the doctor looked at both of us unsuspectedly and said, to Brenda, she had breast cancer. And uh, the journey from there and the struggles and the reality was a lot. And she passed away January 14th, 2004. Um, And my life was in so many ways done at that point. Uh, we had spent so much time and there were so much lessons. And the truth is, is so much of my wisdom and my capabilities is directly 
related to what Brenda has given me and what she's instilled in me, what she taught me and how she's guided me. Uh, it's made me a great practitioner. It made me a great person because I do think I'm a good person because I have those intentions to be a good person. And it also made me stand out because I think the people who came closer to me sent something. And it allowed me to read people differently. Uh, and that has a lot to do with the tragedy and the after effects after she passed away. Before you get into that, I, go, I, go, don't, go, I, want, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I... Interrupt away. I listened to your podcast, and I'm really curious, one, how you met Brenda, and then two, how you knew, she, like... How, to talk about the, before you that that October date. You know where was you, you? You had this wonderful life you were carving. How was she? How was she dealing with the, the the guy you were there chasing after the cat's tail and going all over the place and trying to be the guy you wanted? So I, to be I wasn't to cl to clarify you. I was I wasn't chasing the cat's tail at that point. So you I graduated in two thousand and one. So I graduated in June and I was about to start my career. I got engaged and to Brenda, who I'd met at Western University several years before. Um, so it had to be call it eight years, six, seven, eight years before that. And she caught my eye and I'm not sure if it was secondary to my parents' divorce or not, but I was not interested in relationships and I hadn't had a lot of relationships. I may have had my fun and done okay on the streets, but I was not someone at that point in my life. And there was a lot of roughness around the edges, I think. Um, and Brenda smoothed them all out. Um, mm. And, she caught my eye and she was not an easy catch for me. She ran me through the ringer a little bit. And I remember the first date I went on, uh, as I smile, I took her on a date and I was so excited because it was like after a couple years and she had broke up with the guy who she was with. And I asked her to go out. Um, and we went out and I remember going into the bathroom and looking in the mirror and like, you know, fist pumping, like, oh, you're on fire here. This date is going well. <laughs> and I, I went back to the table. We had to finish the rest of the date. And I remember a couple of days later saying, okay, are we going to go out again? She's like, I don't know if I'm interested. So a couple of weeks later, she actually did in fact come back. And, and the rest is really a magical love story uh, of too many stories to mention on this podcast. But when she passed away, when she got, you know, before she got diagnosed, like, I was that person who had everything. I had the world, you know, right there in my grasp. Her and I had what you really, in so many instances, need, which is a, is, is, is a partner who, who's there for you and you can grow together. Mm -hmm. And so much potential in front of me, it was all gone when she passed away. Mm -hmm. I was broken. Um, I can tell you now, 16 years later, that when Brenda died shortly thereafter, Aubrey actually died. I, I, for certain, died. I struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder and a lot of long-standing issues. I went for a lot of therapy. Um, but the essence of me that stayed is Brenda. I know that. And I have a really powerful story of how I know that to be true. And I think I told it on the podcast that you're mentioning that I encourage everybody, if you've had a loss, if you're, you know, these times are so messed up too. So there's a lot of loss and there's a lot of grief. But I know that that just from the feedback I've gotten, the power of that and how it can help people who have blockages in their life. Mm. But she was always with me. And the crazy thing is, is she passes away 
And, you know, the bank's not going to say to me, don't worry about your mortgage. We had bought a, a house and I wanted to get her that house. It's actually where I currently live, although the home has changed because um, she deserved it. And I wanted to do everything for her. Uh, but the bank wanted their money and I had to go back to work and going back to work, you know, I think it was a month and a half after she passed away was just gruelingly, it was cruel. Mm -hmm. It was cruel and painful. I was always there for the patients and I knew why I was there, but people don't understand their lack of perspective. I'm sitting there. My wife had passed away. I don't have kids are not in my future. At that point in time, I did not think I was going to have kids. And, you know, someone wants to come in and complain that their kid was up till two in the morning at night, or their kid needs help with their homework, or their husband or wife is this. And I'm like, in my head, um, do you know how lucky you are and fortunate you are? You're complaining about something that's not a complaint. You know, people have gotten custom in our world to complain about red wine on a white couch. That's not a complaint. That, you know, that's obviously something you didn't want. And to be dealing with that, a lot of the therapy I actually went through initially was finding ways to deal with human behavior and psychology that was going awry. People mm -hmm. became at that time, and I can tell you, I lost my ego. So when, and I spoke about this on another podcast that I encourage people to listen to uh, that was in my series of kind of Brenda knowledge and, and think that I think people can help with, which is a lot about like having no ego and, and essentially not judging. I lost my ego because I could not have felt smaller regardless of any room I went in. Didn't matter if I was there with a professional athlete or someone whose life was also broken in their own world. I was the smallest one in the room. I was so uncomfortable in my own skin. I didn't want to be there. Truth be told, I wanted to be dead. If I didn't have my religious, spiritual beliefs, I wouldn't be here today. I would have. I would have. I would have driven off a bridge, and that would have been awful because I know what my amount, my life's amounted to, the blessings that I have, and the potential I have to impact people. Similarly to the quote you read, but it was really, really tough to keep your head above water when we live in a cruel world that really doesn't want to talk about death doesn't want to recognize death. And it shaped me as a practitioner that no ego, that no judgment. I was never judging anybody. I was hearing what they were saying. I saw if it was right or wrong. I gave them the benefit of the doubt, but I started understanding this world from a perspective that most people can't have because this world doesn't allow you to have it. And that stubbornness within me, you know, a year after Brenda passes away, oh, Aubrey, you're young, you're good looking, you got to move on. What the fuck? I, honestly, nothing has ever insulted me as much as that. Um, in that just because someone is what you think they are doesn't mean that the past should be what you think it should be, especially if you've never walked in their shoes. So someone telling me that I should move on, are they saying that to the 72-year-old man or woman as well? Or they think just because my birth certificate? And... I became very adamant early on that although I made mistakes and not everything I did was proud, like how can you when you're that broken not make mistakes? But I wasn't going to let society take my life and take the pictures of my wife uh, and put them in a box and put them in a closet just so everybody's more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I'll use the example of when I was seeing my therapist, she also had other patients she was dealing with that had loss. And if you would have asked me 
and you weren't someone. So my whole professional world and anybody who didn't know me, I was faking it till I made it. I was kind of acting like the Aubrey I knew before. If you knew me and you saw my eyes, you would see I was broken. And the reality is I was broken because the higher you are, the further you fall. You know, if you have a great relationship and it goes to a different level, so they go to the world beyond and you're still here, you know, that's going to have devastating impacts on you because the higher you are, the further you are, if you fall, if you're dealing with it. So how could I have had that special, remarkable love and connection that is eternal with Brenda and not be completely broken having to wake up the next day and put on my socks? So that's real. My therapist also saw other people, no judgment here, who lost a spouse. And six weeks later, we're at a bar doing drugs, having sex in the alley, whatever you want to talk about. And in so many ways, society would rather hear that person say, I'm okay, even though they're okay doing destructive things, than hear me say, I'm broken and shattered. And the truth is, is that sometimes you are supposed to be in a grief spot. And it isn't normal to just pick up and move on. And that's where I was. And I'm happy that I did that. And I also did that knowing that I could look in the mirror and respect the husband that I was and continue to be to Brenda. And if I can just segue a little bit quicker, I'm so grateful that I had that stubbornness and I didn't let society dictate my path. It led to many years of darkness. It led to many years of struggle. And, but it ultimately led to the success I have today on a multitude of fronts. And I was fortunate enough uh, in around 2009 to meet Julie, um, who was a very spiritual person. And she always believed in spirits and meeting me uh, validated that because she could sense Brenda's being within me. And she wasn't threatened by it. And I get that because I know most guys walk down the street with your other half and you even look at another woman, they're going to be giving you the, the eyes like, what are you doing? And I have not changed my tune. I love Brenda. She's my wife. She will always be my wife. But I understand how some people can be threatened by that. Julie wasn't. Other people's were and have commented about it at a multitude of points. And Julie was safe to me because we were so different from where we came from and what we, you know, our lives were very different. She was not kind of in my world. I wasn't threatened because I didn't see the long term there. It was just like comforting, a good place for me to be and smile and someone who could bring light to me and make me feel good. But I was still dark. And in many ways, I don't remember those times because of that post-traumatic stress. But she came to me. I think Brenda brought her to me. And we ultimately have two healthy children, both of which are named after Brenda, which says a lot about Julie. And it's not society's way, my life, and how I ended up. And that's why I want to encourage people to not let society that is so messed up and so twisted, you know, impact your way. Mm. And I guess summarizes some of it, but all aspects of my life, including the doctor I became, the expert I became, the human I am, the father I am, the husband I currently am, all those things were all shaped by the tragedy that happened to me and having to persevere through too much that I really don't think anybody should have to persevere through. It's, it's really heartbreaking. I always say that 50-year-olds don't know how to deal with death. So how the hell are 28-year-olds going to deal with it? And the reality is there was a lot of casualties because of that. 
there was a lot of relationships that weren't able to sustain through it. Um, and I don't point fingers for that either, but there was a lot of dark times and those who knew me had to see a lot of sadness. Um, but thankfully I sit somewhere now where I hope to be able to help people with this experience wisdom, um, as society clearly doesn't want to help people. And we see that today with the response to this pandemic. Um, and also I wanted, I wanted to pivot off of that because what I found interesting about your story, and I'm really interested in your, your advice to, to, to people out there who are suffering in certain ways with things like this. You you talk at one point about the the last moments of of Brenda's life and being at the hospital and being with your brother and things and we see now with COVID unfortunately a lot of people are losing people they love very much without ever being actually able to do that in the very least and people are losing you know um, you lost Brenda over a, over a, a period of time obviously and had to come to a reckoning around that but some people are having this reckoning in in a two week time frame et cetera without being able to sort of have that closure um, you know on two on two fronts one is how do you counsel them um, in their process um, not that there really is a, a a solution or or a pathway but maybe just you know, your, your light. And then number two, um, you, you, you talk a lot about people's, I guess it's discomfort. And I think it's a natural human discomfort that you want this person who you care about to be okay again. And you know, they're not, but you don't really know you can, you don't know really how to fix it. And so you use language like, you know, I hope you'll be better or, or get on with life or whatever, which obviously you, you, you were challenged by, but you know, how how should somebody recognize or, or react to or manage that grief and somebody they care about uh, when you look back on them? Matrix Fitness is a global brand of exercise equipment managed locally in the countries it serves. In Canada, Matrix Fitness has 56 employees, four offices, a technical support team across Canada covering all regions and serving some of the biggest fitness and hospitality brands in your community. In 2021, Matrix will celebrate its 20th anniversary and sixth year within Canada. An emerging market for Matrix is its sport performance and athletic training portfolio. While Matrix Fitness has gained significant momentum in the fitness market, Strength and conditioning is evolving, and for that, they need to collaborate with some good people. In the second half of 2020, Matrix launched its own Canadian Ambassador Program, a partnership that looks to do exactly that, work with good people who serve athletes. This is an opportunity to be part of a growing and emerging brand in the ever-changing industry of sport performance. For more information on their ambassador program and exploring the details of how it might work for you, please contact the Vice President of Business Development, Greg Lawler. Please reference the Leave Your Mark podcast and reach out to Greg at greg.lawler at matrixfitness.com. Wow, another good question. Uh, sudden death has, a, has teeth to it that's like nothing else. And that doesn't mean that when you're given time, the after effect is going to be any better. It's just sudden is brutal. Um, sudden is shocking. And I would imagine for so much time, and I was like that even with, you know, I said it in that podcast, it was only three days before Brenda passed away that I actually came to grips with that that was probably going to happen. Um, and, you know, when it's sudden, I don't even know. The people right now who are in hospitals who 
uh, are alone and family members like the brutal, like it's just cruel on a level that's hard for me to find the words. And that's also why since March, I've been so vocal about preventing the spread of this virus. Cause I know, you know, in the States, we probably have 150,000 people who have died that didn't need to, do you know how much grief and devastation that is just one person and avoiding it. And the, the regrets that people will have because they misplayed it are too tough to even express and, and articulate. But what I can say is not having regrets is your answer. And what I mean by that is express the love and the care you have for people now. Uh, don't let that wait until you have to say, I wish I would have said this. I wish I would have said that. Today is your day, everybody. Today is the day to pick up your phone and reach out to the people, clear up any messes that you may have because tomorrow is no guarantee. So not having regrets. And I think very few people who are listening to this can say, you know, put up their hand if I said, you know, do you not have any regrets? The truth is, is there are regrets, regrets that happen in this complicated life we live on. That's the way you confront that and deal with that. Because, you know, I can tell you for certain that having done everything I did with Brenda and the expression I would use for you is we lived life with the disease. The disease was not our life. That's very, very complicated thing for people to kind of come to. But that was Brenda's greatness, not me. I was following her suit, which is continue to be you, continue to spread love, continue to spend kindness to others, be positive, all those things, living life. You know, I used to refer to the hospital room as a hotel room mistakenly because that's just where we lived. But it didn't have to be a dark cloud all the time. So not having regrets allowed me not to beat myself up the next 10 years after she passed away for not doing something. At least I had that, which was key. So how do people deal with grief? How do they deal with sudden? Well, firstly, you try to check off the stuff that you, don't want, you wouldn't want to deal with, God forbid. You know, I say to people now with COVID, you know, we have people wanting to travel. I can't talk about the States because I really think it's just an absolute mess and makes no scientific sense. But even in Toronto, you'll have, you know, older parents who typically go to Florida and they're snowbirds and all these kind of things they want to go there for. Just be accountable. If you're willing to do that and go there, be honest, you could die. Make sure you know where your hospital is, where your physician is, who you're going to see if you do get COVID. But be okay telling your loved ones that, hey, I made a decision because I needed that sunshine and I couldn't, you know, hold in place for another six months because I don't have the perspective, but you end up having to bury a parent. So take accountability for yourself if you're going to make that and just be honest with yourself and take advantage of today. They're really the only answer to deal with whatever tomorrow brings for you is to deal with today correctly. And grief isn't something that people can plan for. That's the other thing that becomes so real is like I could have broke it down any which way if you would have asked me how my life would be if Brenda passed away. The only thing I knew for certain is I was screwed. And I was. And my life was very challenging. That doesn't mean it wasn't fruitful or other people didn't think that it was, wow, what a great ride because everybody judges a book by its cover, which is another societal mistake, you know, Instagram 101. Um, but you really have to live your life to the fullest and manage the relationships that mean the most to you 
And then when you do have grief and you are faced with that loss, it's okay to not feel right. It's okay to be sad. It's okay not to know how to put your right foot in front of your left. But it's also okay not to have the same expectations for yourself as you did be before as you did before that loss. So I think now is a greater example of how we are just dealing with life. So many people think, oh, nothing's changed between now and two years ago. Let's just keep pushing forward. Let's keep pushing forward. There are times where you need to pause. There are times where you need to slow down. There are times that production and performance don't matter. And that's when you are dealing with grief and struggle. It's okay. And I would tell you that I wouldn't be here today if I didn't get help. So I really hope the people who do deal that find the help. But I can also tell you, it's so damn tricky. I called yesterday trying to find a psychologist for two people I know who need to speak to someone and everybody's full because it's virtual and all this. So try and find the help. Try and, you know, have a support system that matters to you. But also, I had to protect myself over time for the conversations that made me uncomfortable. Too many people want to tell me everything's okay. You want to go out, come here, do that. At some point in time, I was like, that's not good for me. It's not helping me. So I had to shield myself from that. So you really, it, it is so challenging. And the best answer is avoid it in the first part. But who are we kidding? Life also is followed by death. Uh, but I believe that there's an afterlife. And I believe that, you know, I also encourage people to keep your eyes and ears open because there are signs coming to you. And I do not believe there's a separation between this world and the next world. Hmm. So this other angel comes into your life and helps you sort of uh, see, see the light of, uh, of the future and Julie, and you have children, two wonderful kids with her. Um, what's the man that Aubrey is at this point is, is different from the man he was in, in what, what key ways when you go into that relationship? Ooh. So, well, I was lost then. I, I can, it's hard sometimes for Julie and I to discuss because it's real, but I don't, I'm not hiding anything. I don't remember much of my life before my son was born. Hmm. Um, and from after, I remember instances, but it's really, it was somewhat more of an outer body bad experience than a good one. And I knew that getting married to Julie and having children was really was something I always dreamed of doing. And I, I you know, I can sadly sit here and look, talk about Brenda because she was born to have kids. And unfortunately she didn't, but having kids was always something that I also wanted to happen in my life. And when Dylan, my eight year old was born, I think that's when the lights were turned on again for me. And I wouldn't call it a light switch, and I'd call it more of a dimmer. So it went from nothing to starting to go on and being well aware of my surroundings. Took me a few years to get comfortable in my skin. It took me a few years to get comfortable between the fact that literally Aubrey pre-Brenda passed away and the guy today, there's really a strong disconnect. That's two autobiographies. <laughs> I can mesh them together, but there's really a disconnect between those two things. Um, and I just think, you know, Julie deserves so much credit for so many reasons, but welcoming Brenda into our life, Brenda's a huge part of our existence. My kids know all about her. They're named after her. We thank Brenda at every corner for the fortunate things that we know are happening in our life that are somewhat, you know, 
those things that happen that you know aren't coincidence or, or aren't simple life's journey, you know, she's at the forefront and um, she is part of our family and I am grateful for all of that. And listen, I started the podcast at its core for one reason. That's to honor Brenda. My children are my legacy. God willing, I will be the father that we all should be when you're blessed to have children. And they will speak to that for years to come when I'm gone, hopefully in a long, long time. Brenda didn't have that. So I've always felt the need. I started a foundation really early on. I just never have been strong enough on my feet and stable enough. And at a point in my life where I can speak openly, honestly, uh, and comfortably to do that. And that's where I'm at now, which is exciting because it meshes well what's going on with my career. But I want to have help people. I want to have these real discussions. I want people to know that, you know what, you're probably going to hear a lot of things that are, may not sound right to you, especially if you're coming at it from a loving perspective. I also recognize empathetically and compassionately that not all people are lucky enough to get the divine breaks that I had to land on their feet. Some people will be that person who loses that spouse that never recovers. And that's just realness. I just hope you don't lose the beauty that was. And when I mean that, I always said it, even in the darkest of days, I wouldn't have changed anything. There's the no regrets we talked about before. Even in the darkest days, I would still say I'm the luckiest man ever to have married Brenda. Hmm. And I am extremely lucky to have found Julie, married Julie, and have two beautiful children. And I'm blessed to be able to speak about all of it. Um, so recognize those blessings in your life. And I guess that's the other thing. A lot of people will be left with regrets because they didn't recognize the blessings that they had until they were gone. And that's my talk about perspective. And it's tough to keep it clean in a world that tells you, you better go get more and more, 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 more. When in reality, you ha may have all of which you ever would have dreamed of right in front of you. Mm. Valuable uh, insight. Um, I wanted to figure out how I'm going to segue from, well, you, you do the podcast. Tell me about your 20, 20 some podcasts in at this point, what um, you started it with a friend that you were talking with, and now you're doing some solos. Um, what's, where is it going? What has it changed in you? What has it contributed to you in going through this kind of ca call it cathartic expression of uh, of your of, of your what's inside the brain? So, I, I guess I could go back a little bit as to how the podcast came to fruition. Um, I sustained an injury a couple of years ago um, that changed my course, and I knew my days of spending 120 days on the road taking care of other people's health would be done once my guys retired. So September 2019 is when I stepped away from practice, and I knew that surgery would be in my future for my shoulder, but I also knew that as I was dealing with my own health was my window to try and do public speaking, motivational, and educational speaking to the to different people. And I spent September to basically January saying, hey, you just worked your bag off and sacrificed a lot for 16 years and went through craziness, truthfully. Who says I need to go to fifth gear right away? Take some time, be a dad. 
I walk my kids to school every day. I pick them up from school every day. And I got to tell you, you don't see a lot of fathers that are blessed to be able to do that. And there's a lot of good reasons why that may or may not happen. And once again, no judgment. But I played in that role. When January rolled around, I started to think, okay, what am I going to do here? Uh, and I started creating courses and doing this. Um, a couple small events occur. The next thing you know, we're eyeballing a pandemic. And then it was just like, okay, I can sit back and do nothing, or I can try and continue to do it. I had an offering from somebody to go on their network and do a show. And it piqued my interest, but it didn't, it didn't make my decision. It, what it did do was say, hey, why don't you start a podcast? Now, I got to tell you, I've never been one to listen to podcasts. I've already said enough on this show that you realize there's so much going on in this guy's head. I don't know where he gets the time to listen to podcasts. So I, I never listened to podcasts. I knew very little about it. And I've been averse to social media because the pitfalls are tough for my stomach. And so I never really wanted that, that type of a stage. I started a podcast and I needed someone to start with me. So that's the friend you told me about. He happens to work at a sports network with some of my contacts. So I brought him on board to help me with the initial stages. And what did I know? I knew my story, personal story, is unique. I'm not the only one, but it's unique, especially when you intertwine the characters, celebrities, and places and I cross path with. I knew professionally that I have a very unique uh, resume. My success has statistically been proven, and my understanding of injuries, diagnosis, correction, for the layperson as well as the athlete, is unique and helpful to people. So I talked on the, you know, started the journey with the podcast, saying I would talk to it and talk to sports and diagnosis. Once I did that podcast for Brenda, which I think was episode eight, it just further you know, validated to me that I'm on a different course here. I'd love, you know, I love talking injuries and I can talk about it with anybody, but I'm not passionate about it as I am about making a difference in other people's lives, you know, and honoring Brenda at the same time. I know that that message goes beyond sports. And I know that most sports talk is just hypothetical, BS that you got to wait to sit and watch to see how it plays out. And I didn't want to do that every day. So I'm already finding a way where I'm like doing this podcast with the intent, like you got to learn if you're listening, it's got to bring you value. Uh, And I want that value to be something that you can take the next day and apply to what you're doing. I don't want it to be so abstract that you can't do that. And I found out as I told you, uh, five weeks ago, I'm literally five weeks to the day since I had my surgery, but I found out basically four and a half weeks ago, which got reiterated, uh, last week that my career, as I knew it is done, I can no longer physically do what I did. There's a reason and a kind of ironic explanation for all that, but the immediately the feeling I had of optimism because of my podcast, if that would have happened and I wouldn't have known what was next or what can be next, I would have been somewhat grieving for a career, which I would say isn't something that one should grieve for. I've had what to grieve for, so I can perspectivize that. But I would have been like, what's next? What's next? What am I going to do? Instantaneously, I knew I could turn to the podcast. And so it's really 
health, wellness, culture, societal stuff, and how it intersects with pro sports and how it intersects with the body and the health and the wellness. So that's the path I'm on. It has been really good, but I find the contact to be unique. Uh, I'm looking for different co-hosts. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have the reach to get a lot of cool guests on. Um, I'm definitely leaning towards retired athletes, not current ones, because it's hard to speak when you're in the game and it's hard to reflect when you're in the journey. So, and the meaningful stuff is when you can speak and when you can reflect. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm going for. And it's been good. It's, it's creatively, I've never done anything like this. It's taken me out of my comfort zone. And, you know, you're many, you're a couple hundred episodes in. So I applaud you. And, and I see some of the guests you've gotten and the lives you're able to impact by bringing them on for conversations. So it's been an exciting new thing for me. I'm my own creative director, but I'm also fortunate enough that people are knocking on my door trying to help me and assist me. Um, yeah, and I can tell you one other thing that I love to hear is the feedback I get. Uh, one of I get calls from a lot of my former athletes who still listen, who are listening to the pod, and they say to me, "You know what, Aubrey? It sounds like I'm, or Dr. G or whatever. It sounds like I'm sitting in your office. You're helping me, but you're also helping me with the journey, mm-hmm. and that to me means a lot because I just want to be myself. It's not easy to be yourself." Um, I don't want to be misinterpreted as, you know, arrogant. I don't want to be misinterpreted as, you know, having intentions beside helping my listeners. So I can't, you know, get focused on that because I can't control what people think. I just want to make sure that the content is in line with my intentions. And I can happily say that 20 episodes in, I think I'm doing that. I committed to doing it for a year, so I'll do it for 12 months. And then I'll reassess and, and decide, is this something, am I bringing the value? Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that my listeners, before I have started a so-called machine, is growing and they're continuing to come back is all that I need to know. The messages that I got after that Brenda podcast from people I didn't know was, once again, the hair on my neck is standing up because it was so impactful that I don't need to reach a million people. If I reach one person and change their life or their outlook, what did I become a chiropractor for in the first place? I'm just doing it under, uh, under a different umbrella, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I need to hear the story. How do you blow your shoulder out at the Super Bowl when you're not playing? <laughs> oh, exactly. I wish I was actually playing, but uh, so... It's kind of whacked. I don't know if you've ever been to the Super Bowl, but, you know, I go to airports often. I go to sporting events often, but I've been to the World Cup in soccer. I've been to a lot of sporting events. The Super Bowl is like nothing you've ever been to with respect to the security you see. And that makes sense because is there a greater target than the Super Bowl? It's actually scary when you're there because it's in, the, in your head a little bit. So I show up. Uh, to Minnesota. And I'd already been the year before with Chris Long played for the Patriots uh, in that famous game in Houston. So I'd been there before and to the Super Bowl, and I was aware of, of what it was like. I showed up to Minnesota that was minus like the weather there's, you know, disgusting. I don't even know why they throw Super Bowls in cold climates. It's, it's the Sunday or the Monday, the week before I'm seeing Chris. And on the Monday, um, I have to fly home that night 
Uh, I want to see my family for an hour and fly out the next morning because I got to go rush to see Zetterberg. And I, the hotel that the Eagles are staying at, you couldn't get off at the main floor. You could only get off at the second floor and take an escalator down. And I get off the main floor. I'm carrying my table, call it 40, 50 pounds in my left hand. I'm on the escalator going down. I'm seeing guys with machine guns. And granted, I'm Canadian, so we don't walk around with these things. And seeing all these things that are intimidating. And, and I get to the bottom of the escalator, and it's a super tight lobby the way they can find it. Right when I get off, I see an armored guy, and he has those guard dogs with him. And the guard dog kind of looks at me, and I'm not a big dog person, um, and he, the dog kind of looks at me and kind of lunges a little bit and it frightens me. And I go backwards. I lunge backwards really quickly. I feel a stab in my neck. That's like a 10 out of 10. I've never felt before. I felt like someone stabbed me in the back of my neck and, you know, lifted my arm with the bag there. Now I'm sitting there carrying a 40 pound bag and everybody's looking at me like what's in the bag. <laughs> so I make it outside of the thing I'm in minus 20 degree weather. I walk a mile to get outside of the perimeter. I get in a cab, get to the airport. Of course, my flight's delayed. Thank you, Air Canada. You only did it 80% of my flights. And I'm sitting in the airplane as it's delayed, and my shoulder is killing me. By the time I got home, knowing what I know about diagnoses, I knew I was screwed that night. I couldn't sleep. I went out the next day. I, I agreed to take care of my guys in my head to fruition because they played injured too. And what happened is, is I tore my posterior labrum. So my, my arm got pulled out and it ripped the whole backside. And I had to battle for a year and a half as I continued to treat guys. I, I didn't take on cases. I didn't do any work at my clinic. I kept it as simple as I could. But here's the kicker. So as a diagnostician and looking for sustainability, you have to be able to read all problems for what they are, anticipate, correct when you need to. I've seen lots of guys with torn labrums in their shoulders or girls for that matter, as well as their hips. You can play sports very functionally. You know that. You were in a hockey dressing room for a long enough time. There are guys who have tears in their labrums, but work with the muscles around, you can be fine. There's also guys who have tears in their labrums that won't be fine. And if it was one of my guys, I would have said to him, you can't play through this for an extended period of time. Let's go repair it. The rest of the joint and everything else is healthy. Because I was doing my part, which I wouldn't change anything about, and I can say that honestly, because um, I had been there for so long and I never once chose myself first. I went for my surgery five weeks ago imaging that he was going to repair a posterior labrum and the the surgeon who I'd vetted as part of my systems and of what I'd done in my personnel over the years he was my shoulder guy ironically the only guy I deal with locally and he was saddened and struggled to tell me that he fixed my posterior labrum but I have four grade four degenerative advanced degenerative changes uh, of basically my humeral head and the fossa uh, that was unanticipated. And long story short, when I, when I tore it, I also traumatized the bone. You could see there's some edema there. 
but driving the car for another 18 months, banged it against all different things, broke it down. And he said, listen, doc, you can't practice anymore. And the likelihood is you're going to need a shoulder replacement. Those are things I've never heard before. And it was shocking. And the irony is, is that I was never once blindsided by any case I ever dealt with. I always knew what I was going to find. The one case in my career that I was blindsided with is myself. And I've had some laughs and some chuckles with some of my guys, but there's nothing I can do about that. Um, I've had the surgery, um, freak accident. It changed my course. Um, you know, you can look at these things one way or another, you can look at it and I can grieve over it and bang my head against the wall, or I can look at it like a lot of people have to in today's time as a force change. A force change brings up another opportunity. You know, you close one door, you can open other ones. Mm -hmm. So, and I also learned from working with professional athletes, not all careers last forever. They actually all come to an end. So mine came to an end at 45 instead of what, 52, 53. I don't know what it would have been like, but I know that the opportunity to be a great dad, the opportunity to be home all the time, the opportunity to impact impact people with my words, as well as the opportunity to use my knowledge to help out other people, because half of my gig was my brain, I will continue to find my way over time. Um, and I'll continue to deal with it the best I can. Uh, but it uh, wasn't the news I thought, and, and it, it definitely didn't yield the results we thought we were going to see. But that is the world we live in. <laughs> you get what you get. You don't always get what you want. Yeah, I want to I want to finish uh, with the, my last question kind of off the back of that because I know on your podcast you talked to a few guys who obviously are retired now that you've worked with and to your point sometimes that effective retirement comes without their choice and I would say probably 90% of the time it's that case. It's very rare that somebody actually says, "Well, I'm just I've had I've had enough time in this in the sport." Um and then we see with COVID, you know, how much it's changed people's lives and sort of, you know, how do you see my, I guess my question to you is um, from your perspective and your counsel to those you want to affect, how do you see opportunity in what looks like a negative circumstance? So whether it's, Hey, you got cut from the team. Hey, you lost your job. Hey, um, you know, you're, you might lose your house tomorrow because you can't make payments on it because of COVID. Like, how do you see the opportunity instead of just the, the negativity in some sense now that you've gone through what you've gone through? Uh, the opportunity lies in what you can see. So it's about writing stuff down and taking a step back and trying not to do it when you're emotionally charged. So, and we're all somewhat emotionally charged and unbalanced these days because we're all living through times that we weren't prepped to live through. We weren't prepped to say, uh, oh, we, I can't go to a restaurant today, even though I wanted to, or I can't go to the ball game, or I can't go for a walk or hug my mom or whatever. Like there's a lot of stuff we weren't prepped to. So that compounds things, but we're forced here. It wasn't your doing. You didn't play a role in the fact that the league shut down. You didn't play a role in the fact that nobody can eat in your restaurant. Um, and we are all victims to the virus on some way or another. But some people will come out the other side better. First and foremost, if you have your health and you have your roof over your head, you got a lot these days. 
if the people around you have their health and they have roofs over their head, you got a lot these days. If you got food on your table, you got a lot these days. Now, we know there's 50 million Americans who are going to struggle to put food on their table by the end of 2020. That is beyond sad. If you're one of these people who's lost something that had value to you in life, but doesn't need to be there forever, and a change would have come, make the most of it. Cleanse the relationships in your life, organize things, do things that you wanted to do before that you couldn't have done because you had the time constraints. And here's the other big one. Are you running your race or somebody else's race? So look at your life and say, like, did I want this life? Okay. Did I want to be the most successful? Did I want to work 20 hours a day? Did I need three cars? Did I need all these things Did I have to, you know, or could I just kind of go to some simplicity? And I look back at history and I think of our parents and our parents' parents, you know, so much of what they did professionally was for sustenance and sustainability and putting food on the table and a part of their life, it wasn't their life. And they weren't looking at pictures of what other people had thinking they needed them in your life. So it's really a time where you can pause and reflect. You need to control your emotion to do so effectively because, you know, emotions really, really make things hard. It makes the uh, emotionally charged times makes it hard for your mind to make the right decisions. Mm -hmm. So calm the emotions and allow your mind to dictate. And I do believe there's a lot of people who are struggling who can come out on the other side better. They come out on the other side better if they kind of focus on those things that we mentioned, some of them, you know, the no judgment, the no ego, the, you know, running your own race and living your own life and having the right intentions. And I think the opportunity does exist. And I also think it gives some people an out and a real good out. And what do I mean by that? I had two conversations in the last three days with two athletes, hockey players, who need to give up their career. They're at the end of the road and no athlete, as you said, you said 90% of athletes, you know, don't retire on their own terms. People, that is a fair, fair percentage. I think it's really 90%. And if it's not 90, it's more than 90. Mm -hmm. And so it's not going to be on your term. You're going to have to say goodbye at some point. Maybe now is the time to say goodbye when the world is getting reset. You know, the contracts aren't going to be the same. It's going to get younger things are going to change when we get out of this. So, you know, look at that as an opportunity and make the most of it. And it always starts in your head, you know, thoughts become things. So you got to clean up your head first, you know, between your ears is your real estate and you need to control it. And only certain people should be allowed to impact that and enter it. And during these times is a chance for you to cleanse that and say, you know what? My work no longer deserves my headspace at nine o'clock at night when I should be playing with whoever. Um, you got to start getting, and we got to learn and take this as an opportunity for society to be better. But I will say this and leave you with this. Pre-pandemic, I sat there with my knowledge and understanding concerned about my eight and my six-year-old is, what's this world like? What are they learning? What are people teaching? You know, what are they seeing on YouTube? And, you know, they're also growing up in a neighborhood like so many people are where their children aren't going to be able to afford there because everything's just inflated and gone wacky. And I said at the time, you know what? My kids got 10 years before the real world kind of hits them in a certain way. Hopefully things will normalize. 
When the pandemic hit, I've been optimistic through my sadness for others that we do have a chance to realize our metrics in our lives, to value them more appropriately. You can't value them based on how many likes you got. You can't value them based on someone you don't know's opinion of you. And you can't value them based on things. They have to be things that touch your heart and matter more and things that will give you value once you go to the grave, what you left behind. I will give you, leave you with one exercise that I encourage people to do often, which is think about your own eulogy. Think about what people are going to say about you when you're gone and what matters. And I can tell you for certain, I don't need people to mention that I was this great practitioner and this expert and I worked with all these guys. I need people to mention that I had a good heart, good intentions, and I tried my best to make this world a better place. Mm -hmm. And we all have that opportunity on some level. And in these times, I'll tell you what I'm doing is I'm trying to help people who don't have that opportunity see that opportunity or get that opportunity. Never have we been in a point in time where we can help others the way we can now. So for those who are unaffected or in a place of, of strength and power, do things for other people. You'll be surprised how much it does for yourself. Awesome. Last question. Uh, just a few words from you. Um, if you ran into Aubrey Green a short few weeks after you lost Brenda uh, now, what would you say to him? I'd say you've experienced a great, great loss and the world's going to be tough and cruel and you're going to struggle for a long time. But if you continue to be who you are and you continue to let Brenda shine, you'll win in the long run. You will win in the long run and you'll make it through, but it's going to be hard. And um, that's just because you're so damn lucky. <laughs> you're so so lucky to have had that, but the pain will be real. The struggle will be real. But I will use my therapist's words, what she said to me several months after Brenda passed away, which is, Aubrey, I can't tell you why. All I can tell you is one day you and Brenda will help a lot of people. Hmm. Nice way to finish. Aubrey, thanks for taking the time today. It was uh, nice to meet you. I'm glad Mark put me in touch with you. And uh, hopefully after all this craziness is over, we'll run into each other for a drink somewhere or what have you. And uh, best of luck with your shoulder as, uh, as well. I appreciate that. And I got to tell you, for my first podcast, this was a pleasure. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, you were able to ask me some really thoughtful things that matter to me. And uh, I was able to say some things that I want people to hear. So continue doing what you're doing. Uh, I know that it's definitely not a small feat for somebody in the industry to be able to get themselves to a point where people trust them and want to speak to them. So Scott, can, congrats to you on your success and, and what you're doing to help other people. And, and, and I do hope that our paths cross in the future and maybe one day I'll bring you on my pod as a guest. Sounds good. Have a great day, man. You too. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.